Good stuff. Okay. Welcome back, everybody, to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Today, on episode 12, we're going to be covering what may be one of the most controversial novels we'll ever be discussing. Uh, today, we're talking about uh, the first half of Heroes Die by Matthew Wittering Stover. And by the first half, I mean uh, days one through four. The, it's the first book in Stover's science fiction fantasy blend, The Acts of Cain, and I want to mention right away that this novel, and of course by some small extension this episode of the podcast, is rather graphic, so I don't know, those with a sensitive palate for violence and strong language, just be warned. Uh, put it this way, if you thought Game of Thrones was bad, you're in for a hell of an episode. Um, but anyway, I'm your host, Rob Santos. I am joined once again by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And making his first podcast debut, Drew's cousin and our very own sound engineer, Mr. Patrick McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? How's it going, Pat? Working. It's yes. going great, thank For you. For those who don't know, in the shadows. yeah, Pat's been uh, so far up to this point uh, mixing and mastering, just doing all of our sound engineering because neither Drew or myself have the uh, the expertise, the expertise, I should say, to do that, or the patience, I would guess. So I'm going to be, yeah, it's editing. I mean, I do some video editing. I have an idea of how tough that is, but I wouldn't even know where to begin for sound. So thank you, Patrick, so much (laughs) for taking time out of your day to do this for us. So I'm going to pass this off to Drew at this point. And what he's going to do is he's going to give us just a a recap of what we've read up to this point. Drew, take it away, man. Yeah. So this book is a little more involved and the world building goes a little more in depth than the stuff that we've done so far. And, uh, I know new readers uh, sometimes struggle with kind of wrapping their heads around what exactly goes on. And so the, the premise of this book is that we're several centuries in the future of Earth, and Earth is now ruled by a global, strict caste system, and they kind of control the masses through entertainment. And how they do that is they've discovered this trans-dimensional technology called the Winston Transfer, where they literally move people from Earth to an alternate dimension version of Earth where magic exists and there are elves and dwarves and dragons and, you know, ogres and, and whatever. Yeah, there are. And so they train actors and implant them with chips and send them to Overworld, which is what it's called, and record their adventures there for the consumption of the audiences back on Earth. And our main character is a gentleman named Hari Michelson, and he is one of Earth's top ten actors. He's extraordinarily popular. He's an assassin. And on Overworld, he's known as Kane. And uh, it starts off where he's kind of, you know, uh, over the hill in his career. He's pushing up on 40. He used to be married to another pretty popular actor named Shanna. And on Overworld, her name is Palace Rill, and she's a mage. Mm-hmm. And the impetus for the events of this book is that uh, Shanna has gone offline during the midst, you know, during one of her adventures, and because she's offline, she's going to die really, really horribly in, like, a week when her body gets sucked back through all the dimensions to Earth. So he has to go find and let her know and maybe rescue her, but his uh, studio bosses are trying to make a, you know, make a pretty penny off of him doing this, so they have him contracted to also assassinate the new god emperor of Ankana, which is the main human empire on Overworld. And this new god emperor, his name is Milekoth, uh, is 
just ridiculously yeah. powerful. He's like seven and a half feet tall, three hundred and forty pounds. You know, and uh, and so Kane goes to Overworld and uh, finds himself hired by Milekoff to find his wife, who has gone missing because of the spell uh, that's called the Eternal Forgetting. And so Kane has kind of an in for both both of his goals. And he uh, he then uses uh, Milecost's information to infiltrate the Imperial Prison and rescue another actor named Lamarack, who is now Kane's ex-wife's lover, uh, and uses that connection to then find Palace Rill. And uh, they have the reunion. He lets her know that she's offline. And at that same time, he realizes that Lamarack is actually a traitor and is the one who betrayed Palace Rail to Milekoff in the first place. But before he can tell her that, he is yanked back to Earth by uh, Administrator Kohlberg, his boss. And that is pretty much where Day 4 ends. So we're left with quite a cliffhanger at yes, the end of this selection. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I was, I want to say again, I was listening to this particular book on audiobook. Um, so I'm really glad that we can get a, I can get an update from Drew or a recap, I should say, from Drew. Drew is, of course, the one who has read this book quite often, or not quite often, sorry, a few times. This is, uh, this is he, my he third. Speaks time. very highly of this one. So, but I want to know, Patrick, how many, like, is this something that you've read over and over again too, or is this something uh, that you're just, you just casually? <clears throat> I'm on my. Uh, this is one and a half times around for me. What do you mean by one and a half? Like you just gave I read it a quick it once. skim. I've read it once. Completely. Oh, what am I saying? We're not I've done the book. Yeah, once. no, we're on halfway through. Yeah, that was a stupid and, question. Yeah. <laughs> nah. That's okay. Um, not to worry. Definitely a lot of a lot more language, a lot more violence, uh, a lot a mm-hmm. lot more just graphic content in this book. Um, I mean, right off the bat, I mean, one of the first lines I have written down. I want to say I, I do like Stover's style. Um, I can't really specifically name why, but I will say right near the beginning, the line, all proprieties must be observed in the death of a king, was kind of cool, but then it immediately was followed up with, proprieties can fuck off. (laughs) And, I mean, I had a little chuckle right there on page one. At least I think it was page one. Yeah. Um, And it kind of, you know, braces you for what's, you know, gives you a taste of what's to come. And we see a lot more of it. I thought it was graphic at the beginning, but my God, when we got to the end of part three and especially the end of part four, I was just (laughs) sitting there like, wasn't sure if I was actually hearing the things that I was hearing. Um, So on the topic of Stover's prose, yeah, you know, and his ability to, you know, construct a sentence, one of the things that stands out the most with him is his ability to craft a fight scene. Oh my God, for sure. He, uh, in real life, Matthew Stover is an avid martial artist. He's trained in something like 22 or 23 different martial arts. What? So he knows what he's talking about. Are you serious? Here. Yeah. Um, and, oh. and it shows. <laughs> oh, wow. It that shows makes a in sense his now. writing. These are all things that Kane is doing uh, that somebody could do in real life. These are not, you know, unrealistic, you know, BS that he's, you know, just making up. These wholesale. are legitimate These moves. are real moves, real, you know, hand-to-hand <laughs> maneuvers and things. And he works that in really well with Kane's character, and that's where the strongest aspect of this book is, and that is just the powerful voice of his main character. Oh, yeah, like, and literally speaking of the powerful voice, I just yeah. want to give a really quick shout-out to Stefan Rudnicki, because that guy does some of the deepest 
growliest, graveliest <laughs> voices I've ever heard any audiobook narrator pull off. His cane is pretty good, but his mild cough is just, I mean, I, at the risk of saying it, uh, using this phrase, out of this world. It is really, really something to listen to. Anyway, go on, sorry. Um, if I can just cut in here on an yeah, ironic yeah. note, Rob, Stefan Rednicki does the audiobooks for Ender's Game. Does he really? And you could not Ooh. imagine two more different books for the same narrator to no be kidding. Uh, to be performing. Because, I mean, like, Ender's Game is child's play mm-hmm. compared, yeah. to, uh, compared to Kane. That's true. I kind of know the feeling. Um, there's, a, there's another audiobook narrator. I, can't, I cannot remember his name, but he did Brandon Sanderson's Reckoner's Trilogy, and then he also went and did Illuminate by Jay Kristoff and Amy Kaufman. And those are very, very different books, but maybe not quite to the degree here because holy crap, Heroes Die is a dark and gritty experience. It definitely is. But it he, Stover doesn't... The reason I still like the book, normally I don't like this kind of thing, but the reason I still very much enjoyed this book, so far at least, is because Stover doesn't seem to use it as a focus. He doesn't seem to give you violence and blood and language just for the sake of those. I mean, it's it, it, it's it feels like a part of what's happening, but it's not the focus of what's happening. It's just a happy, very happy and awesome laugh-out-loud coincidence every time. Well, So, I have a, a major point. I have a lot of notes here uh, to discuss, but this yeah, is yeah, go my it, number yeah. one point right off the top, and, and that is what the theme of this book is, is this discussion of what it means to consume violent entertainment. We are mm-hmm. consuming violent entertainment by reading this book, but this book explores violent entertainment itself through the studio and through the actors yeah. and you know it, it it even brings in almost like fourth wall breaking at points where Kane like Kane has his speech to the subscribers uh, yes. right at the beginning of this book and and he's he's doing this canned thing you know he's got his pre-written speech and then he he stops in the middle of it and, and he says you, you know um Oh, where did I put my book? Oh, there it is. I, I gotta find this quote because it's it's so good. Um, in the meantime, yeah, it's going to point out, Rob, that I, I had the same realization. He's he, the the Game of Thrones comparison is one that comes easily to mind. Did I? Oh, so that's popular. right. I did at the top of the podcast. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I would say that Martin uses it primarily for shock value. Oh my God! Yes, that's one of my big like my big points of just anger that I have not anger but again like I I read I and I know someone's going to be eventually saying do Game of Thrones you have to do Game of Thrones we probably maybe someday we'll get to it just for point of cultural reference but that's one of the problems I kind of had with Martin is that again he just like you were saying Patrick and with a show especially they seem to sacrifice a lot of good writing for just Mm -hmm. shock value Mm -hmm. right how can we shock you worse and worse but Stover is much more subtle about it yeah and so I found this quote here good for it uh, he's good for it. Go for you know, it. Up before this crowd of all the subscribers, these you know ultra millionaires who are paying so much money to see him murder people firsthand. These are an entire like class above him. And he's in the middle of his speech and says something took over Harry's hands. They snapped shut the cover of his notepad and dropped it to the stairs. Fuck this, he said harshly. All night long, I've been pretending to be Kane. You know, walk around, give you the eye, give you a line or two, a little thrill. It's all a fucking act. Yes, I remember this. You want to know what Kane would really be saying to you here tonight? You want to? He'd say, she's my woman and this is my fight. 
He'd say, you flock of shit-eating vultures should get lives of your fucking own. Get out of my way. And he steps down off the stage and walks Boom. out. Boom. Mic and, drop. And it's this supreme indictment of how these people are consuming their entertainment. He's yep. saying they are trying to live vicariously through him in this horribly bloodthirsty manner because he kills people. And with this future technology, they can literally feel all of his emotions and 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 the adrenaline and all of that and and the actual sensation of punching somebody and really? what it feels like to get sliced when he gets sliced open with a knife or uh, something and, you, and suggest, they feel what he feels when that. he kills somebody god damn and adrenaline junkies really go far in the future don't you they? know and and he's been doing this for a couple of decades now but it's his like realization of how messed up this system is that he just pulls this out and and says you know what like this is wrong and you are all messed up for <laughs> buying in so thoroughly to this yeah and yeah. that extends a little bit to us readers because we're also i mean I, I certainly enjoy reading this book you know sure, it's sure. entertaining but what mm. does that mean for me that i'm reading something this violent and oh. and being entertained by it as good sorry go ahead pat Another question, um, what does it mean for him as a writer that he's choosing to write a story yeah, like Yeah, see, that's, that's similar to where mm -hmm. I was going. Um, what I wanted to say was, you got, as, as much as I do agree with you on a, some level, Drew, I do want to say that context is still important, though. I mean, these are, I mean, these are characters in the book on page that we are reading. If I knew for a fact that we had technology going to another dimension and oh, that yeah. this world actually was a thing... And you could speak to these people and feel their emotions and actually kill them. I mean, I think that's still a whole other magnitude of definitely, realism, definitely. right? Yeah, but, um, but it is still people a say commentary. video games make you violent. I mean, Jesus, this is, this is above and beyond virtual, you know, augmented reality, everything. Yeah, Silly but, but it, it's still a commentary yeah. on what it means to consume violent entertainment. True, true. You and for those who kind of like that plot point, check out Westworld on HBO. It's awesome. Yeah, it's very, yeah. It's it explores very that moral idea. situation quite a bit. Um, but so as far as uh, you mentioned Game of Thrones and, and kind of compared mm -hmm. there, I think there's something important to discuss outside of the book. Of course, and that is the like historical context of when Heroes Die was published and what oh, the no. publishing, you know, the fantasy science fiction publishing landscape mm -hmm. looked like at that time. Okay, and uh, you know, so a Game of Thrones, the first Song of Ice and Fire book, came out in 1996, and it did not do particularly well. Uh, Heroes Die was published in 1998 and also did not do particularly well. And it wasn't until a couple of years in that Robert Jordan provided a cover quote for A Game of Thrones that George R. R. Martin's series really took off. So, in a lot of ways, both Martin and, uh, and Stover were ahead of their time. You know, like, they, they were writing real grimdark fantasy mm -hmm way before Grimdark Fantasy became popular. And granted, Martin made it popular, but he also kind of got lucky in how he was the one to make it popular. Simply Most people I've talked to who Jordan. have read both The Song of Ice and Fire and The Acts of Cain will ardently argue that Cain is far superior. Oh, yeah. I, I agree. I mean, I, I've no. read the first two novels of A Song of Ice and Fire. I've read half of Heroes Die. I like Heroes Die quite a bit more. Yeah. And so there's there's a an aspect of luck that comes into it. And there's this result where 
Kane is a criminally unknown book. I mean, it's so good. There's yeah, series. I had never it's heard so of it good. until I started and talking yet, to Drew for years. Very few people know about it. And I actually, uh, so I do some freelance writing for Tor.com, and I recently, probably a couple of months ago now, wrote an article about Heroes Die and the cultural context of Kane and what Stover does and how he stands out in the grimdark genre. So, you know, if you're interested in a little look into that, that is on Tor.com. But yes, it is. It, it's important to understand, like, the timing of this book coming out and, and why Stover wrote the way he did with it. Mm. You know, because there just were not books like this being released at the, at the time, you know? Yeah, it, yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm used to fantasy and sci-fi, especially with a lot more in fantasy, of course. You know, being very lighthearted. Not lighthearted, but fluffy. You know, everybody makes it out okay. There's not a whole lot of, of grim detail. Exploring the darker side of humanity. We saw some of that in this earlier in this podcast, I, I would say, through the Rune Lords. Um, but it's still, I mean, Stover uh, is on a whole other level. Um but mm-hmm. he, he still he does it in a manner, like I said, that just complements the plot. It's not the focus of the plot. Yeah. Um, but some of those sections were very very hard to read, particularly uh, I would say near the end of part four. The, the, whole, the entire yeah the theater of truth and their escape from it. Oh my god! Like yeah. I'm still, I. <laughs> I don't. I, at go the ahead. risk of being that guy, I have to go say ahead. this, but just wait. Oh, oh yeah, no, just, <laughs> no, just come wait. on! How can um, you? How can you beat? I mean, what they were literally doing was they were they were going down a ton, not a tunnel, but a chute full of human shit, and they landed in a pile of of bodies of rotting <laughs> human bodies mixed in with human fecal matter and and waste and all kinds of bodily fluids that were decaying. It was just like a a a, a cesspool of people's soup. And I just, gets, how yeah, does it get um, worse than that? It, it, it gets so much worse. It doesn't how get does much it get worse than, than that in this book, but in the next book it gets significantly oh worse. Oh my god, I'm going to definitely have to take some, like, well, I guess Scravall would be the best thing we have, or maybe smoke a little bit of weed, but god <laughs> damn, that was that was rough to get through. But, I, I mean, you got to respect it for what it is. He still does it in a way that's not gratuitous. As yeah. much as it is just like, you know, unfortunately, sort of matter of fact. deal with it. Yeah, it's matter of fact, you know, you're going to get some details you don't want to get. But I guess it's kind of the nature of reality, right? Maybe it's a little more um, immersive as a result for some. See, mm-hmm. that's that's what he's saying. Like he's yeah, his opinion, unlike Martin's, is um, he's not doing it for the gratuity of it. He's doing it to say this is the way the real world works. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And but that's not all he's saying. He's leading to like a conclusion to a because that's not good enough, right? As a no, philosophical a point, point of view. The reason I dislike this series overall is where he ends up. Okay. Like the point that he ends up making when all is said and done is something that I could not vehemently disagree with more. But really, all in due time. All in this, due time. You're We're talking not, over the the course of the entire. Uh, narrative arc not just in this book correct correct okay. this book okay. is my favorite in the uh uh yeah quadruplet tetralogy tetralogy um because it's uh, well for a couple reasons that i'll discuss when we're finished with the book 
Now, here's a question. I actually probably should have looked this up before I start. I even maybe agreed to do this book, but this series is finished? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Well, yeah, I can't believe I Thank actually goodness. hadn't even thought to ask that until now. Okay, good to know, good to know. <laughs> um, you guys want to start talking about some characters specifically? Yes. Okay, uh, so I might mean, as well we get... have to start with Kane. Yeah, the titular character right out of the way. You know, uh, Harry Michelson, Kane. Does Kane have a last name or is that just his name? It's just his name. It's just his name. Awesome. Okay, so it got like a pseudonym. I like it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I Again, my... my Feelings mirror a lot of my feelings about Raithen from Elantris in Brandon Sanderson's book. What a mm. badass. Oh, What a yeah. badass. Um, I mean, he curses a lot. He's grumpy. He's got. He's always got a wisecrack. Um, he's very, very good at what he does. Uh, I, d- I had no idea that Stover was a martial artist, especially like, you know, a decorated one. That's awesome. It, it definitely lends me um, a lot more to his fight scenes now. But, uh, I mean, overall, I, I feel like he's a strong character. There's nothing in particular that I really sim- that makes him a sympathetic character for me. Um, although you can, again, I like the fact that he is a multidimensional character, though. He is this hard ass on one hand, but on the other hand, you get a few very vivid moments where you get to actually experience and feel his, um, his, his loss over, you know, his, his ex-wife, Palace Rill. Um, mm-hmm. what's, what's her name? Shauna? Shauna. I'm suddenly drawing a blank. Thank you. Shauna Layton. Um, there are, sorry? Shauna Layton. Shauna Layton is her full name? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I actually didn't know that. So there's a there's a, a quote I have written down from Kane's point of view. I think it was part, uh, sorry, part five, chapter five in part one. And um, here it is. Oh, yeah, here's my point. So chapter five, it's a bit of a bummer to read. You can really feel how much he misses Shauna. But what really you know drove that point home was when he sighed, like he's listening to her voicemail or at least maybe it's a video call mm. i can't remember and he adds his last name silently yeah. to hers as she signs off and that really kind of drove that nail home for me i was like oof okay so you get you still get these strikingly human moments out of somebody who is such a figurehead and a symbol for everybody's yeah. gratuitous you know consumption of violence the other one, uh, it may have even been in that same chapter, but when he goes into his vault, and half the vault is empty. Oh, I hadn't noticed he, that. And he thinks about how he could fill it with the rest of his stuff, but it oh, would just be wrong. Oh, yes. But, okay, yeah. As soon as, you, as soon as you went on there, I remembered that. Yeah. Yeah, again, he's he's a multidimensional character. He's not just a one-trick pony, you know? What about you, Pat? Uh, what do you think of him? He, uh... I can't really disagree with anything that has been said so far. Um, it's it's important for me to note that uh, if we want to talk about who he really is, it's it's apparent from the first that he's more Kane than Hari. <laughs> is it though, or is it just because we spend so much more time in Kane's head than in Hari's head? If you want to differentiate the two. Oh, this is a thing. Uh, I actually have written down in my notes. You know, Kane. And his dichotomy with Hari, like, are they really different people? Are they the, the same person, okay. really? Like, because there is a lot going on in the <laughs> yeah, uh, sort of mindset. And and Hari even talks about it, you know. So we have, like, a cool, uh, this is going back to his writing style. There's a cool thing that he does where anytime Hari is on Earth... It's written in the third person. It's it's your standard third person limited point of is view. That but how it separates he, it? it was Hari versus Kane because I noticed that and I was waiting to ask you that. So anytime Kane is online 
and being first-handed, it's first-person present. Anytime he's back on Earth, it's oh Hari, and it's third-person past limited. I feel but like this is something note, I would have picked up he on. He goes offline if I'd read the very briefly. I, I think it's like for 27 hours while he's in the palace, because Milekov mm -hmm. has it like blocked off from transmitting out. And those scenes in there are back to third person. But the the person there is Kane, not Hari. Oh, so there there are deliberate okay. um changes that Stover makes while he's writing to differentiate Kane and Hari. And when oh. we're in Hari's perspective back on Earth, there are points where he talks about Kane rises up within him. Okay. Okay. Thanks for for clarifying that because like I said, I was gonna ask you about that. I did notice uh, in in day one, how it kept switching from first person to third person. I had made a note to ask you about that. I hadn't put together that it was specifically depending on who we were, whose head we were in. Was it Kane or was it Hari? Okay, that makes that just cleared well, well, a and, lot of things up for me. There's Thank a, you. a logistical reason for it. It is basically when we're reading that first person point of view, that mm. is Kane monologuing, and that's what the people who are first standing him back on Earth are hearing. Yeah. Okay, you know. another point so, in favor of reading the physical books, because I feel like I would have definitely picked up on that sooner if I had read the physical book. Um, something to think about for the for the mm -hmm. next books in the series if we choose to cover those. But um, I do think there's a discussion to be had here. You know, Do you think that Kane and Hari really are different people, the way it's being presented? You know, I, I think... It, I think they are separate people. I mean, we've, we've seen, we know for a fact that it's possible for people to have such a thing as, you know, dissociative identity disorder. A lot of people deal with stress. I mean, I'm no clinical psychologist. Don't take me at my word. But I, I, I you know, I'm fairly certain that um, even in our real earth here now in, in 2019, um, on January 27th, on the recording of this episode in particular, I mean, people deal with stress in a lot of different ways. And some of those ways are to create, you know, alternate personas, alternate characters to deal with things that may be better equipped, that you may be better equipped um, to deal with if you change. For example, and we're going to bleep this out, in the Stormlight Archive. I think it's, you know, <laughs> it, again, I'm not a big fan of but I think it's it, she's worth a mention in this kind of discussion, in this context, you know. I, I, I'm just saying that I th honestly think that Kane and Hari at this point are too totally separate characters that happen to share the same skull. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the difference that I would point out between Sean and Kane is that Sean is doing what she's doing unconsciously. For okay. Me, for me, I, I see Kane as, or see, I, <laughs> that kind of tells you where I'm going, that I call him Kane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kane is the real, he is the man behind the mask, and Hari is the mask that he presents to the world. Okay. Okay, no, for two that that occurs for two reasons. The first reason is that um, this man that he is is hideously violent at times and unbridled in like the opposite way that people in his right. society are forced to be. Yeah, he's um, given an outlet and he's forced to take advantage of it by this rigid caste system because his outbursts of violence make them boatloads of money. And if yeah. you look at what uh, Shauna's criticisms to him, yeah, like she starts seeing that Hari is yeah. not the real person. I think we found that, that out Kane early is. in Hari's <laughs> point of view that that she she would confront him about that that you know Kane is really the the one speaking to her at times, not mm -hmm. not Hari. And of course, mm -hmm. I imagine as you know, 
one of two, it's it's very hard to deal with watching your partner kind of just slip into that persona constantly, that hard ass that he's forced to be. You know, what what wife or I'd say I should say what spouse wants their other spouse to come home and be, you know, their job and still be at work on occasion, you know. Right. Um it, it, is, I think it go ahead. Yeah, his his character, his persona defines him. Mm-hmm. And so when he's on earth he is unhappy. Yeah. Uh and over time uh, the stress of that unhappiness leads him to uh, let a little more of Kane out. Yeah, for sure. The more time you spend as a character in someone's head, the more they're sure to influence you. Definitely. Um, um, speaking of Shauna, uh, sure. she is... Yeah, um, yeah, let's, let's discuss. She's kind of archetypal, in a sense. Okay, um, okay. I didn't really enjoy her character because I felt Neither that... Did I. That as, as, like, she is the strong female character, right? There's nothing wrong with well, that. Well, I would, fact, I would argue that it's... There's many... Talon, who's this, the... That's her name, right? That's the strong Talon, female character? Bell, correct. Yeah. Um, Palace is that way as well, although she is caring. She's not cold. I don't mean that to say that she's heartless. Um, but I felt like all of her actions and decisions were predictable. Okay. Uh, Where, palaces. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Palaces, yes, palaces. Palaces, um, yeah, palaces. Whereas few other characters in this book uh, who are main characters suffer from the same flaw. So I I see where you're coming from there, and, and in large part I agree with you. Um, I do think there's an interesting aspect to Palace Royale as a character that we can dig into a little bit, and that's that okay. she's set up, and not so much for us as the reader, but for the audiences on Earth in this, she's set up as the damsel in distress, right? Yeah, yeah. Kane is going to Overworld to save his ex-wife and and hopefully reunite with her because she's going to die horribly. You know, he has to... So she starts off as a plot device right right away. And despite the fact that Kane really does need to help her, because she has no clue she's offline... You know, if he doesn't get there, she's going to so, die horribly. Okay, so here's... he Sorry, can't treat her as a classic damsel in distress. Because while she needs the information that she's going to die, like that she needs to take action and take steps to, you know, not... Uh, uh, what do they call it? Like phase back. She needs mm-hmm. to get to a transfer point and do it safely before the unsafe point is reached. Um, she can take care of herself, though. Like, she is, like Pat said, the your strong female character. She has her own agency. She has competence. She's a very oh, powerful mage. she's definitely mage. competent, yes. And, uh, and we see her even uh, manipulating people better than Kane does in her interactions with Majesty. Yeah. With the King of Kane. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, since this is my first read-through, and this is, again, like I... Like I've said, I've mentioned a couple times on audiobook. I have a couple questions just to clarify things that I've read. Uh, I've saved a couple of them. I'm just going to fire them at both you guys. Um, And this is what, you know, what made me think of it was what you just said about Palace Rill. How is it that Palace, remind me again, how is it that Palace doesn't know that she's offline? How does she not know? Yeah, how does she not know that she's offline? Uh, Because she's doing the long form... Uh, they talk about the different types of transfers, and she's not being first-handed right now, so she doesn't have that like constant update connection. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, so her like transdimensional, uh, uh, they call it like frequency, um, is off, and she doesn't know it. Okay, 
All right, all right. Um, yeah, so now uh, we can talk about Ma'elkoth if you want to. Ma'elkoth, Ma'elkoth. Or do you Mile want to continue Kof, talking about... I mean, do you have anything else about Shauna you want to get out of the way? Because we have, really don't spend too much time in her head. I didn't really form uh, uh, much of a you know, notable opinion on her. Um, like I said, she started off immediately. She was introduced as a plot device. Um, she's not the most interesting character to read, I would think. But, I mean, I'm hoping that she gets a bigger role near the end. Yeah. Um, but that's about it. Like That's everything I wanted to talk about regarding Shauna. Do you have any more thoughts on her? Uh, or should we head into not for the Mile first Koth? half? Okay, all right. Let's save that for the second half. All right. So Milecoth, then you want to? Uh, and Milecoth, I think we have to discuss Milecoth in context with Bairn as yeah. well, because yeah. oh, Milecoth is nominally our main antagonist in this book. He's this you know, all-powerful god emperor. Really? He's physically imposing. He's. I thought he was the main main. Jesus Christ, main antagonist. Wait, who did you think was? Mile Koth. I mean, he's he's the goal. He's, he's one sent, you know, yeah. that Kane is sent there to assassinate. And he's the most powerful one. So I assume right away that he's the antagonist. Yeah, yeah, that's what I said. Oh, I thought you said Baron was the antagonist. No, Mile Koth is. Oh, okay. No, good. I mean, Baron right. is an antagonist. An antagonist, yeah, exactly. But you have to keep them uh, in context with each other because they play off each other so much. And in really interesting ways. So, as I was saying with Milecoth, he's framed as the evil one, right? You know, Shauna, Palace Rail is fighting against him. He's oh, yeah. got this whole, like, witch hunt going on where he's killing his political enemies indiscriminately. And, oh, excuse me. And the mere fact that he employs Baron and unleashes Baron, and Baron is one of the most disgustingly abhorrent oh. people I've ever read about. Oh my god, it's hard to be in his head. But at the same time, we see Milkoff being a benevolent ruler and, right? and genuinely caring about people. And it's this weird thing to, to justify in your head. Like, yeah. you, in some ways, it's like Raja Ten was in the Rune Lords. Where yes, yes. Where it makes you, you find question your moral compass. Sympathizing with yes. the character who should be the big bad guy. Mm-hmm. And... Stover does this cool thing where he kind of bounces back and forth where he'll give you a stretch where you're starting to empathize more and more with Milecoth and then you'll get another Baron point of view mm. and that yanks you back and you realize, okay, yeah, no, I can't root for Milecoth. Yeah. You know? And then and then there's another layer to that relationship between Baron and Milecoth and that's... Um, we get a little bit of a hint of it in, in that very first scene where Milecoth takes Baron and Toa Saitel up onto the tower and he shows Kane's face in the clouds. And as Toa Saitel yes. is being sent away, he sees at the end there Baron holding, or, or Milecoth holding Baron's head against his bare chest. Mm. And there's just the slightest hint of like, is. Like, is there a homosexual relationship? There? Yeah, I've noticed that a few times. And it goes even further than that because earlier in that scene, when Toa Saitel and Baron are verbally sparring, Toa Saitel calls Baron a catamite at one yes, point. Yes, catamite. Baron I had to look really, that word really up angry about, it. about a year ago when I was playing Outlast 2. And boy, was I in for a surprise. Yeah, yeah. And, and so uh, if anybody doesn't know what the term catamite is, it's basically a man who's in a sexual relationship with a boy. I think it's the it's the boy that's the role. Yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the but, title. So, 
Toa Saitel like just says this as an offhand insult to yeah. Baron, and Baron gets furious about oh, it. Oh, you you hear a lot of different times when you're in Baron's head about his. He, uh, uh, first off, he says he calls it horniness a few times, but it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of vivid descriptions of a sexual smile coming mm-hmm. out of him. Um, I did definitely get a few homoerotic vi- uh, vibes from him, mm-hmm. um, but I wasn't certain enough to bring it up during this podcast, so I'm glad that you did. So thank you. I, my uh, my suspicions weren't just like, you know, my gaydar wasn't going off just for uh, <laughs> for no reason. Well, yep. and the other really interesting thing about this is the way the book is set up is that Baron and Kane are played against each other mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, mm. like directly and Baron's got a hate bone for him, though. There doesn't he? very much is another sense of like, is there something homoerotic, not not uh, uh, consummated the way it's kind of implied in maybe with Baron and Milecoth, but there's a sort of romantic almost portrayal of Kane and Milecoth even. Yeah, well, uh, there's a few points. I think it was during Kane's first very first meeting with Milecoth and he there was a there was a moment when uh in Kane's head uh he described Milecoth as I I can't remember what the word he used was, but it was along the lines of stunning and yeah. he was just in awe, um attractive um, but, and again, going back to, to Baron, there was a very specific moment where we, we get a taste of his kind of hate boner, if you want to call it that, yep. for Kane, when he specifically thinks about wanting to fuck Kane's corpse. Yeah. Right? I mean, again, you know, we're going to be censoring a lot <laughs> in this podcast. Well, yeah. we aren't. Patrick's going to be. Thank you, Patrick. <laughs> They're uh, familiar with my censor by now. Oh, my, my. God damn right. Hammer of justice. <laughs> but, you know, that is a, a valid point, though, where Baron has this sort of unbridled sexuality, and even in his one uh, point of view toward the end of, I think, day three, he talks nice. about, or he thinks about his past and what he wants out of life, and he says yes. he really he wants to live. He wants to experience everything, no matter mm-hmm. how horrible. He wants to do everything. Is this during that same scene in his head where he's describing what he wants to do to that one random family? Yes. When he walks by? Yes. God fucking damn it. That was... Yeah. I mean, there's no... I don't have... We need new words to describe what that was like. Yeah, Yeah, he's... he's Purely evil. Reprehensible doesn't even... I mean, there there are no no redeeming qualities to Baron. Where there are some to call him perhaps, a for demon would be an insult to demons. I mean, <laughs> god damn. So I, I hope he gets what's coming to him. Um, uh, so that god. kind of you know I don't hope he gets what's coming to him because I don't want to read something that horrible. Does that uh, make sense? Uh, yeah, no, Fuck I get what you guy. mean. Anyway, um, yeah, back to Miles Ma- Koth. Yes, um, when when he was introduced, that was the real hook of the book for me. Hmm. Oh yeah, because uh, that was impressive. I was like, scene. I was like, oh okay. Like I thought he was just going to be another random dictator, but yeah. it, instantly it's apparent that he's so much more. Yeah, and the situation that that scene creates is really interesting, and that's like for the for me again, that's where the book took off. Yeah, like I so props to that character. Props to Stover for writing a, a really interesting. Let's call him villain for now. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
uh, as far as Miles Cox goes, I have a few thoughts about him, and I know I, I, I'm the kind of guy to hype up a lot of characters all the time. I realize now, listening to our past podcast, I have a habit of saying, I love this character, it's my favorite. Oh, this character's my favorite, too. But, I mean, I when I say that Miles Koth may be my favorite villain of all time, I'm going to back this up right now. I have whole points just ranting about Miles Koth, so let me get this out of the way here. First off, he's got an interesting introduction. Uh... Of course, I say interesting with air quotes because the description of the entrails, you know, pulsing in time with the victim's heart, it was horrifying to read. Uh, his large inhuman stature and build, the, the manner in which he speaks, his whole diatribe about he like how he holds time in his very grasp yeah. and reality shapes itself to his will. I mean, right off the bat, he, as Pat was saying, he seems like he's going to be a hell of a force to be reckoned with. Um, and then, of course, the part where I really fell in love with Myla Koth as a character, like, as, as a villain, was during his interactions with Kane. Um, yeah. Specifically, I can't remember if it was in part two or part three when Kane was in the palace and he was observing the meeting between Myla Koth and, and his subjects. Um, he was kind of observing it unnoticed at the beginning. But, uh, you know... Like, again, going back to Milo Koth, his mannerisms are brilliant. Like, the way he kind of imitates Kane's more, like, earthly verbatim, plays along with Kane's humor mm-hmm. on occasion. His whole M.O., like, he had a great, great uh, diatribe, again, about, you know, finding out about Earth, which was a moment, as a reader, you're like, yeah. oh, shit, yeah. hold on a second. This <clears throat> kind of, this problem went on a whole new magnitude now. Um, you know, his desire to imitate the success of future Earth by becoming the only true god of Overworld. The moment I think I, I officially decided I liked him, though, was when Cain asked him, are you trying to become the only true god so you can save mankind, or are you trying to save mankind so you can become god? Mm-hmm. And then Myle Koth just booms this genuine laugh across the whole chamber. He confuses everybody, right? Um, but he, again, he speaks to Cain, and he seems genuine when he tells Cain. Yeah. That's why he values Cain. That's why he keeps him around for his insight, just for being able to ask questions like that in the first place. He still comes off as self-aware, right? Even though mm-hmm. he goes off on these on these rants about his power and he's such a megalomaniac, but at the oh, same time, sure. it seems like he backs it up every single time we get a, a glimpse at him. Uh, you know, and he kind of he reveals to Cain that worst off these other people, the Actiri, of whom like he's investigating. Um, he reveals that they're invading their own world to commit such atrocious acts simply for entertainment, going back to our yeah. earlier point, you know? Yep. This, like, so I, I would say that, you know, to wrap up my thoughts on Mile Koth, he goes on to fill what I consider at this point in my life, what I consider to be the perfect antagonist, the perfect villain, you know? He's one who makes the, the protagonist or the reader or both wonder about their own morality, because like this is how the perfect antagonist is written, I think. He's and I this may be a bit contentious to say, but I went on to say to wrap this up, he is everything that Dark and Rawl, Rajatan, and the Lord Ruler tried to be. Hmm. Very much so. Um, yeah. He comes so. across as not human no. in many ways. But um, he started off human. I don't get that. Like right. maybe um, the whole and I, I don't just mean physical characteristics or anything like that, although that is certainly uh, uh, above humanity. Um, his whole attitude, like mm-hmm. we've been discussing, mm-hmm. is a, this balancing act between megalomania and benevolence that mm-hmm. no human has ever been able to achieve. Um, and we've seen throughout history the tyrants who attempted to yes. sell that story 
Um, but Mile Koth is written in a way that makes it believable on the page. That makes him not only not human, but very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and because this is a fantasy world, it gives Stover the opportunity to write a character who can pull this off and have the, uh, in in a sense, a moral justification for what he's doing because yeah. he literally can become God, you mm-hmm. know? And that brings in kind of a, a one of my other things I've written down here, and that is the the presence of religion in these books and how uh, <laughs> um, how gods are present in in Heroes Die, and very much even more so as the series goes on. Okay, and uh, you know. it's like it's really neat how he takes fantasy gods you know he, he has a fantasy world that's not totally original you know there are lots of other books out there you can read where it's like oh the elves have a god and there's a god of war and yeah. a god of death and you know all this stuff competing gods um but because he has a portal fantasy going on here where earth is a thing he can tie back the themes of those gods to religions on earth specifically christianity which is what he brings up here and, and that's where as you said malakoth gets his whole idea for how to run his empire and how to become god and it's to aggressively and violently evangelize and we got that really cool scene during uh the the um baptism for lack of a better word uh the the ritual of rebirth is that what you're yeah the ritual of rebirth uh, can you uh, we'll get into that in, in a little okay. bit but okay there's the um i don't remember that scene if we got one uh there's the uh um, the like lightning god priest there. Yes. Who, uh, who, obviously he's like, I'm consecrated to my god. I'm not gonna forswear my oaths. And if you speak blasphemy against my god, he will strike you down with a lightning bolt. And Milekoth just kind of laughs and says, "All right, come at me." Yeah, and, come at me, bro. Bring and the in. guy does it, and he calls down lightning, and Milekoth just shrugs it off and kills him. You know, and <laughs> suck it, noobs. Yeah. It's, this in like really visceral and a very effective way for him to use the ideas of aggressive evangelization that we see many religions in our world today. Yeah, for sure. But with a, a more immediate impact, like how easy is it to to say, uh, you know, my religion is the true religion when I can challenge your religion straight up in a literal battle of magic and beat you? Yeah. Like, Absolutely. That's a point that Milekoth makes specifically about what he learned about the other world, about the, the Dakteri, mm-hmm. and, you know, mankind's success in that future, and how they used to rule the world based on gods that were just, you know, ephemeral. They they, they were just on the page. They were just ideas that existed in your mind. Well, and he, he said his they, whole point, the quote is, they weren't even sure if their god was real. Yeah, thank you. They weren't even sure if their god was real, which is a great point, because what Milekoth then goes on to say is that what would people be like if they could actually see their god? They had a tangible god who could perform tangible miracles right in front of their eyes. How much mm-hmm. more powerful is he going to be as a result? And it's kind of hard to argue with that kind of logic. Yeah. Definitely. Now, the ritual of rebirth. Yes. Um, what does that... Like, what What are the consequences of that? Because I, I, I remember Cain once or twice mentioning that the god... Uh, sorry, the god. Uh, Milo Koth could speak to him because of... Mm-hmm. The ritual of rebirth. What do we know? Why exactly that is? Is that like a something to do with the magic system, or is that just like a this works because of that? Just accept it. 
More so the second. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> There's a pretty soft magic system so in this Mild book Koth's in general. So Mildcoth's ability to do that doesn't extend to just anybody. No, like Mildcoth is ridiculously overpowered. I mean, he is a literal god at this point. And really? there's more to the ritual of rebirth than we just got in this one. Um, we'll we'll get a little more about it in the second half of this book. Okay. But okay. Uh, the most immediate effect of it is that yes, Milecoth can then speak in the minds of his children directly. Oh, interesting. But oh god, I have an I have an answer to Milecoth's question about sure. Um, <clears throat> what would the people be like if they had a god that they could actually see? The answer kind of depends on what kind of subjects you want. And this is kind of telling to Milecoth's character. Mm. If you want children who will always run to you to solve all their problems, whenever these things inevitably come up in day-to-day -day life, that's what you get with the Milecoth version. You will never get people who are capable of standing on their own who will learn fortitude and uh, perseverance, etc., etc. Et and that's not what Milecoth wants either. He doesn't want um, autonomous, capable, independent beings. He wants to be loved. Mm -hmm. And that's why he's present to his people all the yeah. time and doing all these things. He's showing what? his power so that he will be admired and run to. Well, and exactly. even more than being loved and admired, he wants to be depended upon. And that's why we get this crossover uh, with the political system on Earth and the Board of Governors recognizing how dangerous this game going on with Cain and Pals really yeah. is because <clears throat> they see, you know, the rigid caste system on Earth is being reflected in the empire Milecoth is trying to build mm -hmm. in Ancona. And they know how dangerous it is having Milecoth and his empire framed as antagonists for Cain when back on Earth a very similar system of government is ostensibly the good thing. And that's why they go to Kohlberg and tell him, use that emergency button, use that recall button, if Kane starts going over the line and, and talking about politics. Yeah. And Kane does several times. And yeah. that's why we get that recall. Well, part of why we get that recall. Yeah. Like, um, like uh, you know, exactly like Milecoth said to Kane when Kane asked him the question to which I referred to earlier, you know, are you trying to save mankind so you become you can become God? Or are you becoming God so you can save mankind? And Milokos' answer to that question was, it's irrelevant. Yeah, it doesn't He said matter. he had already been aware of that. He had already asked himself that on occasion. And eventually he decided that it's irrelevant. Does it matter? Yep. You know? And I think that speaks a lot about his character. Mm. Um, That's scary. Going forward. It's, yeah, it's terrifying to consider, you know. Um, While we're talking about characters, I want to give just a quick shout out to Toa Saitel for being awesome. <laughs> I don't know yeah, why okay, okay. I like him so much. But I do. I'm always, like, anytime he's on the page, I'm, like, hooked on his every word. Whenever we get a, the rare point of view from him, I'm all about it. Uh, he's the sneaky we'll... politician, you know? He's he's the crafty one. He's, <laughs> he's the one who, who's insightful. And yeah. He's and a lot of times, this is a character that turns out now. to be a lot more, you know, dangerous or influential than you Indeed. expect. Indeed. So. Than the bear. Going forward, I, you know... <laughs> I predict that he's going to do something really important. Um, I, I like I him would in keep the that same. prediction in your back pocket. Yeah? No, speaking, I mean, speaking of predictions, I do have one yeah. prediction going forward. Ooh. Let's hear it. Well, in, well like, before we get to that, I think we should do our, our three favorite scenes first. 
Oh my god, I didn't pick any. Ah. <laughs> this is not the first time I've done it. Okay, it's okay. I'll pick some off right off the bat right now. Yeah. Um, the introduction... So, sorry. Pat, do you have three favorite scenes? Um, uh, the, the one that struck me on my reread, um, most of all, was there's a scene where Hari on Earth is riding in a helicopter and there's a storm going on outside. Mm. And the lightning illuminates his face. In the next scene, it's from Toa Saitel's point of view, there's lightning on Overworld, and it, in his no. imagination, or so he thinks, there's a face illuminated in the clouds by this mm-hmm. lightning strike. Whoa. We are, we, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Whoa. that's worth, that's <laughs> worth going back to check it out. Blew my mind. It's, oh my God. it's unreal. Um, so cool, but easy to miss, so I'd go back and hunt for that. Awesome. Um, Apart from that, my favorite scenes have yet to occur, Ooh. so I'll just kind of keep well, those yeah, under should... my hat for the time uh, being. So you're gonna you're gonna take the easy way out and only only do one favorite. Scene. Well, I totally diving, forgot about the, the diving favorite through scenes. shit scene. Would make was pretty more cool sense too. To well, <laughs> at the very end of the book, I suppose. But I, I mean, can I, choose them off the top of my head. As was Mile Koth scene. Yeah. So I think Mile Koth is in every scenes. one of my favorite three. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the escape from the dungeon. You know, yeah. that, that was just the so vivid and so truth. well done and so action-packed. Uh, and, and with really fun, varied combat and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and getting to see Talon in action, she's awesome. She's yeah. awesome. She's Definitely. really incredible. Uh, and we'll talk about her more in the second half of this book. But uh, the the second scene for me is that speech that Kane gives to the subscribers. Uh, when he goes through... Uh, you know, so I didn't mention this earlier, but you know, there's this ball, this party. Uh, it's a masquerade, actually. It's a costume party for all the subscribers, and the theme of it is like the, the enemies of Cain, and it's all of the antagonists over the course of his many adventures back in his career. And this time around, you know, now that I've read this full series twice, over the course of the series, you do learn more about his past adventures, and so it was fun. Okay kind of putting all of these names that are just names on a page if you're reading this the first time in context and being like Ew. ooh oh it, okay yeah and and recognizing why these people are um so popular that subscribers would want to dress up as them and, yeah, and how dangerous they were and stuff like that and like, like uh, Perth and Claylock <laughs> there who's uh, that was when Mark Velo dressed up as him, right? Yes. Yeah, like he he's got like a crushed eye and his eyes like hanging out mm. of the socket, and yeah, uh, <laughs> that's a great story. We'll get there in in a couple of books. Um, <laughs> but I like that scene a lot, and and the mic drop at the end with his speech, and then even better after that when Kohlberg runs after oh, him. Oh, his confrontation with Kane, Kohlberg was so satisfying. Well, Hari realizes that he has Kohlberg by himself in a secluded hallway and he becomes Kane and he outright threatens Kohlberg. And in this mm-hmm. cast system, you know, that's a giant no-no. Yeah. And uh, and that informs all of Kohlberg's actions for the rest of this book. Mm-hmm. So, well, Financially speaking, though, financially speaking, he's got Kohlberg by the balls. So he has, I mean, that's why a bit of Kane seeps out, I think, right? Kind of. I mean, kind of? You'll, you'll see. You'll see. Okay, I'll see. I'll, I will see. Um, I'm sorry. Did you but, get to all three of yours, or did? Uh, no. So my other one was when Kane sneaks into Kirandal's rooms, yeah, okay, okay. and like we get that from her point of view, and it's so good because she 
we've gotten a couple of scenes from her point of view immediately preceding that, and we see how utterly in control of her setting she is. You know, she she runs one of the most powerful gangs in the city. She's this incredibly powerful mage. You know, she's completely the master of her surroundings. And then she goes in, and the moment she realizes Kane is there, she is terrified. She's yeah. so scared. Yeah. And, and yeah. it is proven, you know, the right response because during their interaction where she has just effortlessly manipulated everybody we've seen her interact with up to this point, Kane just runs roughshod over her. Yeah. You know, I loved that interaction. Yeah, for sure. That's not, yeah. I totally forgot about that scene until you brought it up. And uh, speaking of forgetting about scenes until you brought it up, I was thinking just a few seconds before you did, I was like, oh, yeah, Kane's scene when he was talking, well, Kane, Hari's scene when he's talking to the subscribers, <laughs> that mic drop at the end is so notable. I did love that scene. Um, but I think, you know, I would, I'd have to, you have to give a shout out, of course. I would have to give a shout out to that huge, huge mid-book climax that we got um, with the escape from the Theater of Truth. That was yeah, so yeah. long and there was so much action packed there into what is, you know, the halfway point of the book for for mm-hmm. all intents and purposes i mean um i wasn't expecting to be so uh entertained and gripped that early on to this book because i was aware i mean i'm the audiobook is like 22 hours and you know change um I, this is like 11 hours in or 12 hours in so i wasn't expecting to get that much action and that much awesome this early but uh i think my very favorite scene of the entire book would have to have been um mile Koth's his whole his whole explanation to Kane that he knows that he's on to what's happening that these earthlings are coming to his world and that they are performing all these atrocious acts and you really start to think about you know where your moralities lie and Kane starts to realize oh crap something is really wrong i mean that whole scene is done so perfectly well especially mm-hmm. with an antagonist written as well as Milecoth's is um I mean, so far in the first half of this book, that, I mean, to me is bar none my favorite scene so far. Yeah. That's that's a good one for sure. It's definitely um, a good one. Or even his introduction. is such a perfect introduction, too. That was gruesome, but it was effective. Um, do you have any predictions for I only had events one. of the future? I only had the one. Um, and it, of course, it deals with Mile Koth. I think that he is too smart for Kane to really be going along with what he's going along with. I mean, I predict formally right here and now, Mile Koth is on to him. He already knows that Kane is an actor. He knows. But so far as he's admitted, every time he tries to torture information out of these people to get more information, uh, to get more information, clearly, uh, <laughs> they, they all seem to, to have this phantom death that just shows up, right? And he can't get any more info. So I think his roundabout way of getting more information on this, what he considers to be the biggest threat to his people. He uh. is playing Kane like a fiddle. He's onto him and he is just trying in a very roundabout way to get Kane to reveal more information than, you know, he's been able to learn up to this point. Okay. That's fair enough. So, I will tell you that I had the same uh, inclination as yeah. you did when I was going through for the first time. But okay. that's all I can say on the subject. Oh, yeah, sure. That's fine. I, I would like to interject. Okay. Uh, and just bring it back to favorite scenes. And this is an honorable mention. Cool. This cool. is back to when Kane and Kohlberg have just gone over the Shauna situation. Kane has just second-handed her final moments before yes. the eternal forgetting was triggered. And uh, Kohlberg's trying to get him to contract to assassinate Milecoff. 
And and Kane says, if you're so hot to have him killed, why don't you just transfer six guys with assault rifles into the Kolhari Palace? Oh my god, did he say that? And he goes, we, er, Colbert coughed wetly into his fist. We tried that. Except it was eight, not six. We, uh, still don't know precisely what happened. Oh my god, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, you just, like, you just blew my mind now because clearly we now we know what happened to them, right? In that oh, yeah. yeah, in that scene yeah. that we've been discussing extensively. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, when Malakoth is, is is talking about these these beings that oh yeah. the act yeah, like and that's that's how he knows. <laughs> like so so imagine you're like Malakoth and then all of a sudden eight homeboys <laughs> with assault rifles roll into your palace. SWAT like, team kicks down his door. Like, you deal with them, but you have some questions that you yeah. want answered. Like, what the fuck, being foremost among them, no doubt. Yeah. God damn. Yeah, That's cool. but I, I got such a crack out of that. Between and, and that Kane's, and the, and the scene that reaction. Matt brought up earlier, with the, the, the reflection in the mirror of Kane's face, on the mirror in the sky, oh my god. Mm -hmm. but these, I'm definitely going to have yeah. to pay a lot more attention going forward so I can pick up on these kinds of things. Yeah. Bravo, Stover. <laughs> These books are, uh, they fall into that category where they're, where, where they're well worth reading again. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, it's a different experience the next time. Indeed, and you pick up on uh, quite a bit more detail that perhaps I know I missed on the first time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm listening to the audiobook, so I'm going to miss, you know, quite a bit. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I will um, say that. Do you have any more predictions? No, that's the only prediction I have going forward. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I think I can end it right there. Do you guys want to head into the final draft? I think that's uh, a good sounds idea. Sounds good to me. Awesome. Okay, I'm just gonna since I've got the boring choice, yeah, boring choice. You know, um, I'm just gonna come right out and say I've been drinking a shock top. Oh yeah, know, something I've been drinking for years. Everybody likes a shock top. Well, hey, everybody you know, should sometimes. like a shock top. You know, Belgian white. It's mm -hmm. uh, it's a bit of a you know opaque beer. It's got a lot of citrus in it. That's why I love it so much. I love that citrus. It's mm -hmm. it comes out in every single sip. Um, 5.2%, so it's a little stronger than, like, you know, your, your average beer, at least in here. You know, in Canada, your average beer is 5%. Sure. It's, you know, very weak. <laughs> um, but I, I know Drew this. once, I was listening to a past podcast that we've recorded, you know, a few weeks ago, and Drew had a, a beer that was like 11% or something like that. Yeah, so, it happens. Let, what are you guys <laughs> drinking? Um, speaking of beers that are 11%, <laughs> I am drinking a dragon's what? milk. <laughs> Did I nail that on the um, head? A uh, bourbon barrel aged stout. Um, it is in, uh, precisely eleven percent from Holy New shit. Holland Brewing. Um, Damn. Em. It is delicious. Uh, it feels <laughs> like a that? meal. Cup? Is that a mug? What is that? It's a horn. It's a horn. Oh, okay. Yeah. Forgive me. <laughs> Makes total well, sense seems, now. It just seems so appropriate. It is my <laughs> drinking horn. Awesome. <laughs> Beer oh. exclusively. Oh, man. Drew? Drew, what are you well, drinking today? So, I am drinking a an ale. It is a sour ale brewed with elderflower and lemon. This is a collaboration between New Image Brewing and Funkworks Brewing out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, it is 7.2%, so it's, you know, it's pretty nice. Pretty beefy for a sour. Um, but it is called Bromance. 
Bromance. Oh, that is thematically appropriate. God damn it, man. How do you continue to find these? Well, I guess maybe in Fort Collins it's a little easier than elsewhere. When <laughs> you have 50,000 microbreweries <laughs> yeah. all pumping out, run by nerds. And when I visit, um, we're, we're going to have to visit at least 49,000 of them. Yeah. Hell yeah, yeah. man. Uh, yeah, so I, I feel like I don't really need to explain. Yeah. <laughs> the, oh, the, no, it'll happen eventually. Uh, but it, this is very nice. I've actually, uh, I'm on my second one. I don't normally drink more than one beer over the course of these yeah. episodes. but See, uh, I normally yeah. would drink these beers a lot faster, but I don't want to have to get up and pee during the podcast. So <laughs> I already I've been did, it. you didn't notice. Yeah. Oh, I did. I just, you know, I was like, oh, thank God it's not me. Because <laughs> I'm in the middle of talking right now. Yeah. Uh, mm. No, it's good, though. I'm Wait, no, I did get up in, in the middle of a podcast and go once, but uh, I want to yeah, say that well, was during Warbreaker. I don't know which book it was. Remember. But anyway. Um, With the magic yeah. of editing, it's all serious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Shout out uh, to Pat. I think we're about ready to wrap up then, yeah? I think we are. So on the next episode, we're going to be covering the second half of uh, Heroes Die. Yeah. So, um, yeah, th- this is episode 12 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm Drew McCaffrey. I've I'm got... Rob Santos. Mm-hmm. I'm Pat McCaffrey. And, uh, yeah, as Rob said, next up we're going to be finishing Heroes Die and going into a very great discussion after the end of this book. God damn right we are. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, have a good one. Peace. Peace.